mouth. They're like babies with their mouths always open. While Paul says that duties must be placed above rights because God, almighty, sovereign, and holy, righteous God in the purpose, per person of his sin laid down all of his rights and went to the cross and where to follow his example. It involves putting others above self. This passage is very like Ephesians 5, verse 22, down through chapter 6, verse 8, where he talks about the same things, except this is a shorter, more concise package, and it is missing the likening of the marriage relationship to the relationship of Christ and the church. Paul tells us that in every area of life, we are to be examples in all of our relationships to the world because of our love for Jesus. And so there are three things I would mention to you this morning that we are to do for the love of Jesus because we belong to him. Now in verses 18 to 21, for the love of Jesus, we are to put duties above rights, others above self, in the home. In the home. God's greatest gift to society is the home. And in all ages, the family has been held together by two principles, the principles of authority and obedience, as in all human institutions. The family being God's greatest gift to society is to be the one unit of society which, along with the church and above all others, is to show the world how God intends for things to be done. In the home, the authority principle must be honored and obeyed as it is less perfectly in other areas of society for the stability of a truly Christian family is perhaps the most powerful witness to the grace of God that the world can see. And very seldom can the reputation of the gospel be preserved in any location if there is a consistent failure of the so-called Christian homes and churches to reflect the divine principles of authority and obedience. There must be authority and thus obedience in every human institution. And we are to let the family and the church lead the way and point the way to Christ, showing the world how God would have things done. Now in the text, in verse 18, the wife is commanded, it is not a suggestion, and a wife who lives on any other premise with or without the consent of her husband is living in sin as surely as if she were living in adultery. The wife is to be subject or submissive to the husband as is fitting to the Lord. Human rights, notwithstanding, there are differences between all things in creation. And in any relationship, there must be deference 
there must be authority. Now it is to be shared, as Paul explains more fully in other places, but someone must be in authority, and it is the perfect plan of God that in the home it be the husband and the father. And the husband is to be receive respect and submission from the wife. She is to recognize the rights of the husband's authority and voluntarily, without coercion, be willing to defer to him as is fitting to the Lord himself. Now, the husband, it says in verse 19, is to love the wife and not to become embittered against her. The word love, of course, here is the word agape, the kind of love that God showed us when he stepped down off the throne and with no guarantee that every creature he had made would return his love, he gave himself for us freely. In Ephesians 5, we are told that the husband is to love the wife in the same way that Christ loves the church. How did Christ love the church? He loved the church enough to die. The story is told of D.L. Moody, who was approached at the, uh, the ministry there in Chicago years ago by a young man who said, Dr. Moody, I have a problem. I fear that I love my wife too much. We've been married a short time, and I can think of nothing else. And when I get up, I'm thinking of her. All day long, I'm thinking of her. I'm not doing all of my work, and I cannot wait to be with her, and I fear that she is loved too much by me. Moody pondered for a moment, and he said, Young man, are you quite sure that you would die for her? The young man, with candor, the candor of his youth, thought and then answered, No, I'm not really sure that I would. He said, Then you'd better keep working at it. You don't love her enough. You don't love her enough. Husbands, you to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And you will incur no greater guilt in your life than when you fail to do so. I would point out that the submission of wife to husband has nothing to do with the spiritual fitness of the husband. If you're an unsubmissive wife because your husband is not a spiritual man, you have probably damned him to hell and his blood is on your hands. For as in society, no public official, no law enforcement official is perfect, neither is any husband. And authority is not subject to perfection. And it is strange that people who live under that misconception can never quite see their own imperfections. And yet they demand it from everybody else. That authority is to be recognized and by the husband he is to love and not to become embittered. It is his great privilege and his great duty to share his life with one whom God has given him. We're told in verse 20, the children are to be obedient to their parents. As with husbands and wives, it does not mean if they are worthy of obedience. It does not mean if they are right. It does not mean occasionally, but consistently, all of the time, the parent 
is to be obeyed and you need no better reason than that this pleases God, period. And if you do not live in this fashion as a child of your parents, then you're living in rebellion against God. Not occasionally, but all of the time. Authority and obedience are what hold the family together. And the family is the unit that holds the world together. And then he has words for the husband as a father. He says to them in verse 21, Fathers, do not exasperate your children or provoke them to anger that they may not lose heart. Do not fret them. Don't harass them. Don't overcorrect them. Don't build a response of resentment within them to you. Don't discourage them. You see, it is highly unlikely that any child who does not know without question the acceptance of his father or her father will ever be fully able to accept himself or herself. You know, we need to keep those priorities straight, and it begins when our children are very young. Have you ever noticed sometimes how when a small child will break something or do something they're not supposed to do, in the, and we parents will pitch a fit, you know, we are telling that very perceptive young child that that trinket, even if it was very valuable, means more to us than they do. Don't discourage them. Don't ever confuse the fact that they have faults with the fact that they are of infinite value to you, that they are the precious gift of God to you and your wife. Don't do that. Let them know that no matter what they do, you love them and accept them and that there is nothing that they can ever do to turn off the love that you have for them and to turn it away from them. I suppose the far and away the number one root problem that I have dealt with adults in the last 15 years as a minister, the number one root problem goes back, whether it faith expresses itself in homosexuality, in marriage problems, in infidelity in marriage, however it expresses itself. And the sad thing about it is, if that relationship is not right when children come along, that parent who so desired the good relationship with his parents will not have a good relationship with his children. And the number one problem that can be found beneath many things that I see is the fact that they never really felt love and acceptance wholeheartedly from their parents. Now, let me tell you the other side of that coin. When you provide everything that the world has to offer, you may be telling your child the same thing as you tell him when you are too worried when something bad happens. When you become a sieve and through you runs everything that is desired, you are telling the child you would rather give them anything else except yourself. And all they really want 
is you. All they really want is you and your love and your acceptance because if you don't accept them, in all likelihood they will never be able to accept themselves. Don't confuse the false with their worth and be sure they know how deeply you care for them. The old adage says, as the twig is bent, so grows the tree. I encourage you not to break it before it gets knee high. And then in verses 22 and 23, for the love of Jesus, we are to put duties above rights and others above self in the world. Paul says, slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, pleasing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Don't seek to please men in what you do. Aim higher than that. In uh, Ephesians 5, Paul uses the term eye service for those who try to find out what it takes to make another individual happy, and then they try to please the individual. He says they are giving eye service as men pleasers rather than trying to please God. Do everything you do like you're doing it personally for the Lord Jesus. Now, the principle stated here, though slavery by the grace of God is gone from this society, the principle stated here applies to the relationship between employer and employee. If your goals for performance for yourself are set so high that you want to please God with the job you are doing, you will do well. But beware... And take note of the fact in advance, the life of Daniel is a perfect example. When you set your mind on pleasing God, little people around you will fear you and hate you for it. They will fear you and hate you for it. And when you find someone carrying the banner of they or we, or the people have to be pleased, you're finding somebody marching in the devil's army. We are to be God-pleasers and not men-pleasers. And in one of his epistles, Paul asked the questions, if I have become a man-pleaser, why am I still being persecuted? If you set your sights on pleasing God, and let him be the rule of your faith and practice as every true Baptist who ever breathed does. If you set your sights on pleasing him, little people will fear you and hate you for it. For they cannot understand true devotion to God that puts authority of his word and obedience to his word above all things. Literally, Paul says, whatever you do, do your work heartily. Literally, the Greek says, throw your soul into your work as you are doing it as if for the Lord. And then in verse 24, 25, in verse 1 of chapter 4, here is what we receive from the Lord. Paul says, 
knowing that the Lord you that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance it is the Lord Christ whom you serve for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality masters grant to your slaves justice and fairness knowing that you too have a master in heaven. From the Lord we receive our greatest satisfaction, our most blessings, and our most blessed and enduring reward because Paul says we really do serve him. You as a Christian belong to the Lord Jesus, thus you with every day of your life are serving him, not somebody else. You're serving him. How well are you doing? You know, he says in verse 25, and we just like to forget this law of the harvest, the man who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong that he has done and that without partiality. Somehow we think that if we feel like we have to do something, even if God forbids it, it's all right. Nobody is exempt from the authority of God's Word. And you know, it is authoritative whether it's accepted or not. And it is the standard by which all things will be judged whether it's accepted or not. Now, there are many things it says, and when you violate them, you're living in sin. God never gave you permission to violate them. He never violates them himself. And so stringent were the demands of righteousness that he gave his own life so that we might be saved. We really do serve him. In verse 1 of chapter 4, we are told that an employer must also be totally fair and honest in all his dealings with his employees because he too has a master who is in heaven. You work for the Lord, no matter what you do, employer or employee. And as Paul seeks to, to apply the principle that whatever we do in word or deed is to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. We are to do in the home and in the world what he demands, putting duties above rights, putting others above self, putting forgiveness above offenses, putting forgiveness above avenging for the love of Jesus. And we are to do all for the glory of his name and the spreading of his gospel. For the love of Jesus, for the salvation of the lost, for the reputation of the gospel at home, in the world, whatever you do, do it heartily as for the Lord and not for men. May we pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth. I thank you for the grace which has picked us and chosen us and regenerated us unto eternal life. Father, I thank you for the gift 
of the home which you have made to the world and for the privilege of having a godly and loving wife and precious children. And Father, I pray that all of us every day in all of our relationships would realize that unless and until we personally put ourselves under authority that you have appointed and submit to it that we are not fit to exercise the authority you have given us. And Father, forgive us when those for whom we are responsible suffer because we are not what we should be. By the power of your forgiveness and your love, the freeness of your grace, would you restore us to perfect fellowship with you? Would you draw from every husband and father, every wife, every child, every employer, every employee today, the kind of commitment that would bear positive and true witness to the world of what you can do for our lives. Father, make us what we ought to be so that your purposes may be achieved through our lives. I claim it by the power of his name. And I 